people cannot get over the idea of masks. The desire, the fetish that is masks in America. Now, if you decide to wear a mask, I'm not going to tell you how to live. You get to make that choice for yourself, even if I think there's no science to it. No, wait, it's not that I don't think there's science, no science to it. There's no science to it. You see, you can make the argument that there's a science to vaccines. That you take a look at the people who get COVID, and if they're vaccinated, they survive COVID. But people who don't have vaccines have a much rougher time. That doesn't mean I would favor a vaccine mandate. As a matter of fact, I think you're remarkably radical, dangerous, if you push for vaccine mandates. But masks, masks don't keep out COVID based on every piece of data I've seen. Yet that doesn't stop President Biden. We follow the science. What's happening now is all the major scientific operations in this country and the 25-person group we put together are looking at all the possibilities of what's happening now. They're looking at whether or not there should be some level of nationwide mask mandate. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it's good to be with you. 833-GOT-TONY, 833-468-8669. Facebook, Tony Katz Radio. Find everything at TonyKatz.com, and you can support the show right there. Phil Kirpin joins us right now of AmericanCommitment.org. He's not a doctor, but I have met very few people better at breaking down the data of what is going on with COVID, with vaccines, and with masks. And let me start with this vaccine conversation. Some data I saw out of the UK and what we're seeing here in the United States with what they call the Delta and the Lambda variant, which is the variant out of India and the variant out of Peru, where we see the cases going up and you see cases going up. But in the UK, the data showed that while the cases are going up, the deaths aren't necessarily going up, that vaccine use and maybe some other things have decoupled these two bits of information so when we see cases of covid going up in the united states is it the variants and is it leading to an increase in deaths well um i don't think that the i don't think that the delta variant itself is particularly different uh in terms of its uh level of Virulence uh, compared to earlier strains, it may actually be a little bit less deadly um, if you look at the overall numbers than than the prior strains. It is more infectious, uh, not the 60 or 70 percent scare number that people were saying, but the latest UK data has it at seven and a half percent more infectious, which is plenty to take over. Obviously, as we've seen, it gives it a big advantage, but it's not uh, not the massive numbers that you're seeing in headlines. Uh, that said, the the vaccines seem to be very effective, uh, and you mentioned some of the UK numbers. If you look on a on a case fatality ratio basis, which is to say, you know, if you have if you become a case, if you have symptomatic COVID uh, after the vaccine, you know, if you're under 50, there's basically zero risk either way. It doesn't make a difference. But if you're over 50, uh, there's a there's about a 70 percent decrease uh, in the fatality ratio for vaccinated versus unvaccinated, which is, uh, you know, it's not 95, but it's big. And then you consider that the vaccine also probably has an effect in preventing people from becoming a case in the first place. 
uh, and that's where you maybe get into the 90, 95% type. So the Delta variant isn't as deadly as CNN at all are telling us? Uh, no, in fact, if anything, for people under 50, based on the UK data, if you look at the uh, unvaccinated people under 50 in the UK, it's a little bit less deadly uh, than the prior strain. But, there, you know, we're talking about 0.06 versus 0.03. So it's such tiny numbers that uh, I don't know if you can actually conclude that it's less deadly, but it, it, uh, that, that's what the numbers we've got from the UK so far. And where does this put us with the Lambda variant, which is out of Peru? Well, it's not getting a foothold in the U.S., and I'm not sure it will because... Uh, I know the, of one case in Houston. That's the only one I've heard of. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, the thing is with, these, with, with the way these variants have gone, and we saw the same thing when the U.K. variant first came to the U.S., even a small advantage in transmission. Uh, you don't need to be 60% more transmissible. If you're 7.5% in the household context like... Delta is, that's more than plenty to take over almost, you know, 100%. You basically push everything else out because even a small transmission, transmission advantage means it's going to spread to the vulnerable people before uh, the other ones can. And just over time, it, it builds to larger and larger numbers. And so uh, I think it's unlikely that Lambda or, or even Gamma, which has been here but has been sort of declining in numbers, are going to be uh, something that we need to look at the characteristics of and think about and worry about because just like the alpha variant or the UK variant kind of took over and muscled everything out for a while, that, that's what Delta's doing right now. Talking to Phil Kirpin of American Commitment, AmericanCommitment.org. He spends his days, weeks, and months breaking down the data so we don't have to. Now let's get into where this is leading to in our society. I have, I have heard people who I'm supposed to, you know, they're supposed to be on my side engaging in what I think are some radical thoughts. If somebody wants to get vaccinated, I have no issue. If someone doesn't want to get vaccinated, that's up to them. Somebody wants to wear a mask, I have no issue. Somebody doesn't want to wear a mask, that's up to them. My opposition comes in the idea of forced, forced masking, mask mandates, uh, mandates on vaccines, saying you can't enter restaurants or bars without a, a, a vaccine, you can't go to a concert without a vaccine. Eric Clapton just coming out to say, I'm not going to tell people they have to get a vaccine to see one of my shows, and if the venue requires that, I might cancel the show. On this conversation of masks, which is now making its way into the school conversation, you've seen the American Association of Pediatrics say that children over two should be masked. You've heard Dr. Anthony Fauci continue to talk about, oh, we need masks, oh, we have to be safe. People pushing this down the line. In your research, in the data that you have gone over, do masks worn by the general populace, not necessarily those in the medical profession, engaged with N95 masks and proper washing of hands and gloves, etc. In the general population, do masks stop the spread of COVID? No, they don't. Well, we're and, done uh, here. Thank you very much. They don't uh, among school children, and uh, it, it's a very strange. It's a very strange thing the push that we've seen, and that AAP document is bizarre because they've got that whole new section on masks, uh, and they've got no citations or references in that section at all, and and they do, but they do have a citation on the part of the thing that says that uh, they want another round of federal funding for schools, and the citation is to an American Federation of Teachers Union lobbying document. And so I, I kind of see AAP as sort of a left-wing political organization more so. This than being the American Association of Pediatrics, yeah. you're discussing, you, you follow them as a, or in your research, much more political than um, medical. 
Yeah, I think that's right. I, I just, you know, w- w- you know, if you believe the CDC, and maybe the CDC numbers are nonsense, you know, we could, you know, but if you believe the CDC, 40% of children age 5 to 17 in this country had already been infected by March of 2021, and that's the most recent estimate they've done. So if 40% of the kids got it by March, then none of the stuff you were doing prevented them from getting it. Uh, and it's probably over 50% now. And then you got to wonder, well, are the exceedingly low near zero numbers that we're seeing for children in terms of serious disease because any of the stuff we did to protect them actually worked? Or is it just because children are inherently protected because they're children? They're not vulnerable to this. And I think it's almost certainly the latter. Um, you know, if you believe that CDC number, you, you know, 40% of them by March, it means whatever you were doing didn't work to stop them from being exposed to the virus. It's a good thing they weren't actually vulnerable. And then you go, so why are we continuing to do things that didn't work, that are a huge hassle and an inconvenience and disruptive that prevent kids from having normal, uh, normal lives, normal school experiences, that prevent their language development and their communication skills from developing, that give them headaches and fatigue and discomfort, and that uh, you know, cause mental anguish and anxiety. And we have a mental health crisis among kids. And so I think... You know, you look at all of the data, I, I, I think schools should be to- totally normal for kids, and uh, especially because, Tony, the vaccine is now available to every adult in that building and to every adult living at home with one of those kids. And so, you know, the children themselves are not at risk. If you're concerned that they're going to pass it on to someone else, well, that person has a very protective measure available to them if they want to avail themselves of it. If they choose not to, that's no reason to impose something on children. Well, we'll get into the vaccine part in just a second, but let me give you one of the ways people respond to the idea of masks. Uh, Here in the Indianapolis area, uh, there's a school district, uh, the Carmel Clay School District, uh, where there's going to say masks are encouraged but not required. Even Vaccinated or unvaccinated, they're not going to require masks on children. And uh, one of the local uh, outlets uh, got with a, a doctor who was part of a town hall to talk to the parents last night. And this doctor is quoted as saying, wearing a mask, it's just a good, polite thing to do. It helps break through cases and everyone is going to do better with it. So I would encourage everyone to wear their mask in school, vaccinated or not. Now, the data shows that it doesn't necessarily help break through cases. But when you get doctors saying to you, it's just a good, polite thing to do, we're no longer talking about science at all. Yeah, it's really odd because, you know, the medical profession for, you know, 100 years, uh, basically after masks failed in the 1918 flu epidemic, you know, ever since until, you know, last year when they all flipped, the consensus was that you can't stop a respiratory virus uh, with a piece of fabric, that, it, that, it's not a prote- that it's not protective and it's not, uh, and it doesn't prevent outward transmission. And that was not, uh, in, that was not invented. That was not based on nothing. I mean, there have been a dozen randomized controlled trials, and they've all found that, that you cannot stop an airborne respiratory virus with a, uh, with a fabric mask or even with, or with a paper mask, for that matter. I mean, there, there are some studies suggesting that you can, as you pointed out, with a well-fitted medical mask, although even those are mixed. There are studies both ways on those. Uh, but certainly with the types of masks that they're using, uh, they consent this for a long time based on a lot of evidence and a lot of studies has been that they don't work. And early last year, there was this uh, very sort of uh, seat of the pants, hey, it looks like cases are low in Asia. It must be the masks. And then they sort of, you know, sort of 
reverse engineered justifications for it afterwards, but they've all been extraordinarily soft. Uh, there have basically been two types of studies that they've used to try to show, show that masks work. Uh, one of them is ecological studies, like comparing two different geographies, two different counties or states, uh, one that masks and one that doesn't, two different countries. And those are extremely sensitive to your choice of endpoints, and uh, they always pick uh, the beginning and end uh, to where, you know, the, the place with masks was already going down and the place without them was going up. And uh, they, they are, uh, you know, you change the endpoints and you get the opposite results. So those ecological studies are kind of useless because they're driven completely by selection of endpoint. And then the other one they've got is they've got these mechanistic studies where they do things with mannequins in a lab and, you know, they tape the mask down on the mannequin and that kind of thing. But all of those studies assume a particle size much larger than respiratory aerosols. They're assuming things like, you know, five microns, and it looks like the uh, aerosols that we're dealing with are predominantly much, much smaller than that, more like 0.3 uh, microns. And so, you know, all they show is that in a lab setting, you can stop particles that are much bigger than the particles that the, that, that COVID is traveling on. So what, is, what does that tell us? And then you kind of look, Tony, at the evidence, which is every place that tries to mask still has big outbreaks anyway. And, you know, this is, I, I think we're at a point now where you can probably conclude that none of these interventions are going to actually prevent people from being exposed. And everyone or almost everyone either has been or will be exposed to that vir to this virus, which is a very good reason if you're vulnerable to get the vaccine. But we should stop pretending that, uh, you know, we can stop a highly infectious respiratory virus from spreading through the population. I got about 60 seconds, but I did want to focus back on vaccines because we keep hearing people talk about not only should you get vaccinated and people can do or or, or not do. I think the, the science is clear that the people who are vaccinated, if they get COVID, seem to survive COVID at great rates. They seem to do much better in dealing with COVID than people who are, are, are unvaccinated. But this conversation of children being vaccinated, especially as we talk about going back uh, to school, we have seen both the CDC and the World Health Organization say, let's hold up a bit on kids and vaccines yet we've got others throughout government and and uh, uh unions for teachers saying oh you got to get your kid vaccinated before you send them back uh, to school parents i believe are reticent because we're talking about their children if, right if, if covid was polio parents would be killing each other in the streets in order to get the vaccine but that's not the way uh, this works uh, the data you've looked at regarding children and the vaccine they need vaccines well, an unvaccinated child is lower risk than a vaccinated adult and considerably lower risk than a vaccinated senior. And so it's important to have that context in mind. Uh, you're, you, if you are a parent and you are vaccinated, your unvaccinated children are still lower risk than you are, which is not to say that you're high risk. You're probably low risk, but they're just that's how profound the age distribution is with this disease in terms of severity. Uh, for children, it's uh, less severe than flu, uh, generally speaking. Uh, and obviously, that's not the case for adults. And so, you know, this is a circumstance where, you know, I, I think there's very little logic or need uh, to vaccinate children in terms of, of, of the risk to them. That said, uh, the vaccines are pretty safe. Uh, and the adverse events that we're seeing uh, are, are pretty rare. So you get into this circumstance where now you're comparing two very, very, very rare things, right? The, the rare side effects versus the, uh, the very, very rare severe COVID in young people. And frankly, from what I've seen, especially from the cardiac uh, risks for 
young men for boys in their 20s or teens, um, the risk with the vaccine is probably a little bit higher than the risk with the virus. So just on a pure risk-reward basis, you, you probably would want to pass on it. That said, the risks are so low all around that, you know, if you want, if your kid wants to do an activity or go to a place and they're requiring it or whatever, you shouldn't be scared to do it because the risk is going to be very low either way. Although well, I want to make sure say, I heard you. Know, you. An unvaccinated child is at a lower risk of COVID than a vaccinated adult. Yes, that's right. Phil Kirpin is his name, K-E-R-P-E-N. You can follow him on Twitter at Kirpin. K-E-R-P-E-N, AmericanCommitment.org. Phil, always appreciate it. More to get to. I'm Tony Katz. The market's up over 250 points right now. We'll see how the rest of the day turns out. Meanwhile, China is sanctioning Wilbur Ross, the former Commerce Secretary. Well, of course they are. This is in response to U.S. sanctions on Chinese officials over their clampdown in Hong Kong. Nice retaliatory move. I don't think it's going to uh, bother Wilbur too much. You know Wilbur Ross has got some bank. Wilbur Ross spent his four years as Commerce Secretary. He's left the money, came back to the money. Uh, he, he, he's doing just fine. So it's just a little tit for tat and means nothing of absolutely nothing. I do think it's interesting that with everything the market went through at the beginning of the week, uh, it, it's, it's back to such an incredible spot. One of the other fun stories... Nicole Hannah-Jones, who wrote the uh, 1619 Project, which is a lie, she tweeted out, if your argument is strong, there is no need to leave out context and inconvenient facts. To do so demonstrates the weakness of the argument and a lack of ethics. And then it was noted that the New York Times edited the 1619 Project because it was, you know, wrong and left out context and inconvenient facts and it was weak, and it lacked ethics. These people never learn. I'm Tony Katz, and this is Tony Katz Today. Mr. Speaker, I rise today to stand up for and in support of our Border Patrol agents, our National Guard, the officers of the Texas Department of Public Safety, our local law enforcement officers protecting our hometowns, and all those that have made securing our border their mission. In fact, my own Florida National Guard and several of our Florida officers and deputies have become part of the mission to secure our southwest border. That's Representative Kat Kamek. She represents the 3rd District of Florida. She has spent time at the border. She has been vocal in the conversation. Me, I'm Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. Facebook, Tony Katz Radio. 
You can find me on Parlor on Instagram, on Twitter, at Tony Katz. Representative Kat Kamek joins us right now because she happens to be in my beloved Indianapolis where she's speaking <laughs> to the young Republicans who have gathered in Indy uh, this weekend. And I do want to uh, get with you on the border and what you're seeing there from young Republicans. People think that it's all over for Republicans. Young people aren't interested in conservatism, those kinds of things. Uh, but first... I wanted to get your take. Uh, it's Indiana. Congressman Jim Banks of the Indiana 3rd kicked off the January 6th committee mm-hmm. on looking into what happened on January 6th. Of course, uh, Congressman Jim Jordan of Ohio, uh, the same. Kevin McCarthy pulling all five from the committee. Is this committee even worth it to you? <laughs> well, hey, Tony, it's good to be in the Hoosier State, loving everybody that we have met so far and everything we've seen. And, yeah, you know, I was actually on the plane with Jim Banks coming from Washington, D.C. yesterday. And I told him, I said, man, you and Jim Jordan must scare the hell out of Nancy Pelosi for her to pull such an idiotic stunt like that. And, you know, I, I think it was smart for Kevin McCarthy to pull everybody off of that committee because we knew exactly what this was going to be when it came up for a vote. We knew this was going to be a dog and pony show. They are going to create their own facts. Uh, the findings will not be based in reality. It will be all political. And it's going to be a witch hunt. We knew that. Because if Nancy Pelosi was serious about getting to the bottom of January 6th and really talking about what went down that day in the days leading up and the actions that she herself didn't take. And I'm talking about the fact that she didn't, she told cat police to stand down and they weren't properly prepared, but that's for another day. But if she were really serious about getting to the bottom of this, she would have gone ahead and formed a commission in the days in the immediate aftermath, but because she knew it had to be political and otherwise her party would have been thrown under the bus tremendously. She had to go through months and months and months of conniving and manipulating and getting all her pieces in place before she would agree to a commission. So take it for what you will. I think the American people see it for what it is. She doesn't want Jim Jordan or Jim Banks on that committee. And, and heck, the rest of them, Kelly Armstrong, Troy Nels, you know, these, these people were there on the floor. We all saw it with our own eyes. We saw it firsthand. They scare Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats to death. They absolutely are terrified of the truth coming out, and that's why she kicked them off the committee. Do you think there are Republicans out there, whether it's in your caucus or or out there in, in, in the great wide open, who would actually like to have some kind of investigation to January 6th? Would you, if it was actually an investigation, was that something you would favor? You know, I, I want to see factual uh, true investigations, which we are already, that is already ongoing. That has been an ongoing process. You know, I sit on Homeland Security Committee and I have received the briefings and every time I leave the skiff, I come out with more questions than I do answers. And so there's a lot of questions that need to be answered. And I think publicly, uh, you know, the American people deserve transparency and certainly there needs to be accountability for that awful, awful, horrible day. And when you think about Muriel Bowser, mayor of D.C., saying that she didn't want the National Guard to be boots on the ground at the Capitol. When you look at Nancy Pelosi and her decision to tell the sergeant at arms that, no, we are not going to call in overtime 
for Capitol Police to have additional reinforcements, knowing that there had been threats that had been made, there had been a lot of chatter. We know that the FBI had been tracking and had delivered over 15 briefs to the Capitol Police, to Sergeant-at-Arms, and to the mayor's office. Why? Why did Nancy Pelosi say no? Why did Muriel Bowser say no to National Guard? That's what the American people need answered. I know conservatives want answers. Not one conservative that I know thinks that what happened on January 6th was a good thing. I don't know any American that saw January 6th as anything but a horrible, horrible attack. And I I really hope we get to the bottom of this. But we have to take the politics out. We cannot have Nancy Pelosi conducting and engaging in a witch hunt to fit her political agenda. Talking to Representative Kat Kamek of the Florida 3rd District. Being in Florida, border conversations are big conversations. And you've been to the Texas border. You spoke about it uh, on the floor uh, of the House. Uh, you have engaged in, in this conversation. Talking about, uh, as you have on your website, protecting our hometowns begins with defending the homeland. And being in Florida, there's also a conversation at all times, no matter where you are, uh, regarding Cuba and what's taking place yeah. in, in, in Cuba. Let's start there. You're more to the north. You are a distance from Miami. But what are Mm -hmm. your constituents telling you about the situation in Cuba? And are they pressing you in any direction? You know, overwhelmingly, my constituents stand in solidarity with the Cuban people in their bid and quest for freedom. They've lived for 60 plus years under a tyrannical rule. Um, and, And it's clear that communism not only doesn't work, but it has destroyed a, a vibrant island and oppressed people stolen their their families futures and and we see that we know that and you know of the millions of cubans who are now americans over 60 percent reside in florida so every single congressional district in florida has a cuban population and we we stand with the with the cuban americans we stand for for any people seeking freedom and it's just asinine what you're seeing playing out you know the the internet has been suspended on the island but yet the president has access to his twitter account which twitter of course by the way won't suspend his account but they will suspend president trump because you know the we know that the cuban president is out there telling the truth right i mean never a bit of misinformation (laughs) from the cuban president ever Exactly. I mean, he is perpetuating a completely false narrative, which, of course, AOC and her ilk are perpetuating this narrative that people are protesting about COVID. No, they're protesting because they're starving. They're protesting because their doctors are making $40 a day. They're protesting because they have lived under this tyrannical rule by brute force at times, most of the times, and and, and they're sick of it. They're done. And so I think it's important that we all, regardless whether you're Republican or Democrat, we come together as Americans and we support our neighbors to the south. But, you know, we talked about the border a little bit. You were mentioning that, Tony. And, right. yes, I, I did just get back. I've been out to the border a few times. And um, this last trip, I took several of our sheriffs from um, my region in Florida. And I wanted to drive home the narrative that every 
town in America is a border town. Every single town in America is a border town. And people say, no, 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 that's a Texas thing. That's an Arizona thing. It doesn't impact me. Let me tell you, being the wife of a first responder, my husband goes to those calls where people are overdosing on heroin and fentanyl because the amount of drugs that is pouring into our communities is all coming through the southwest border. We had uh, a situation in my district here just a few weeks ago where the cartels engaged on a hit um, with some of our residents. Drug deal went bad. The cartel members were fleeing back to Mexico. The marshals picked them up. And this is in a little tiny town of a population of about 2,500. Don't tell me that our hometowns aren't being affected by the open, porous border that Biden has created by executive order. Let me let me go uh, further down that line about open porous borders, talking to Representative Kat Kamek of the Florida 3rd District. We were told that Cuban refugees, actual refugees, will not be welcomed into the country. This from the Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas. We were told that Haitians, after dealing with the, 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 uh, the assassination that took place, they would not be allowed into the United States. They wouldn't be allowed by boat. But we have the photos in the videos of grown Haitian men walking across the border from Mexico to Texas. How do you explain that to your citizens? And how is this now discussed with a President Biden who very much seems like he doesn't care about the border at all? Well, he doesn't. He absolutely doesn't. And in fact, uh, President Biden is the greatest president for the cartels that Uh, You know, he's the greatest gift for them because in America, in Biden's America, it's a great day to be a member of the cartels. You know, just last month, they made one point one billion dollars in their human smuggling and trafficking operation, which is why I can no longer call Biden president. I call him trafficker in chief because he has earned that title through his action, his words and in this case, inaction at the border. But you see what they're doing. You know, you you are bringing people across and, and don't get me mistake the cartels control the border border patrol doesn't the cartels control the border you do not get across that southwest border without paying the cartels a premium and every single man woman and child who's crossing that border is about six thousand dollars ahead is what they're charging and i saw at three thirty in the morning with my own eyes standing there with national guard texas rangers and our Border Patrol agents who had very strict, firm orders to stand down and to assist in a humanitarian capacity to basically welcome these people across. And the thing that made me the most sick as these cartels, these coyotes, were bringing people on rafts over right in front of me, literally five feet in front of me, they're Americans. One of the Texas National Guardsmen said, I went to high school with that guy. And I said, are you kidding me? He said, no, the cartels love having Americans work for them because they use their citizenship. And 100 miles or 100, 100 yards just to my right, they were actually carrying loads of fentanyl up the river because the humanitarian issue with these kids and these young mothers, that's the distraction. That's the decoy. And I stood there and watched as a coyote literally held up a two-month-old baby and said, if you guys don't back off right now because we were getting too close to the river – as he's bringing people over illegally, he said, I will throw this kid in the, in the river to drown. And they know we'll dive in, we'll go after them. But it's all a decoy to distract from the, the criminals that they're running 100 yards south of that and the drugs that they're running 100 yards north of that. A grown that man said to everyone. you, a grown man said to you, if you bother us, we're going to drown a two-month-old. And I have it on video.
Representative Kat Kamek joins us from Florida. Let us... Yeah, we're, we're going to have that image in our heads for a good long time. Let's talk about you in Indianapolis. First, may I say, you come to my city, you, you don't reach out, we're not having a cigar. That's, this, that's disgusting. Oh, well, all right. I, I owe you some bourbon and a, and a cigar. I promise well, I'll make good on it. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see if you know your bourbon and cigars. I am quite an expert in both those fields. But let's talk about this. It's the Young Republican National Convention. Uh, I thought young people weren't Republicans because uh, uh, they, they, they didn't hate. Who are you seeing? Who are you talking to? What are you experiencing? Well, as you know, being the youngest Republican woman in Congress today, I'm 32 and I, I think it's important that we have that next generation of millennials and Gen Zs at the table willing to take up the mantle and, and that fight to protect that wonderful thing that we have here in America, equal opportunity, not equal outcome. And so this conference, you know, here in Indianapolis with the young Republicans, this is about 700 young conservatives from all over the country that are engaged in uh, their communities at the local levels running for school board, running for county commission, um, and they'll be the, the nation's leaders here in the next few years. And I just think it's so important that we highlight that this generation of young conservatives is the most educated, diverse um, group of people that we have seen really a resilient I know millennials, we get a bad rap for for having a sense of entitlement. But I can tell you, having been homeless 10 years ago, I've lived under big government programs and it doesn't work for us. We are fiercely independent and we want to have that same opportunity that our parents and our grandparents had. And we're going to fight like hell to protect it. So I'm so excited to be here in Indianapolis, talking to the next generation, making sure that we are engaged ready to go for the fight that we know is already underway with Nancy Pelosi and AOC and the left agenda to socialize our nation. So we doing cigars tomorrow night or what? I'm sorry? Are we doing cigars tomorrow night or what? Oh, yeah. You, you can count on me for that. <laughs> see, We'll see if we can hold her to it. Representative Kat Kamek, C-A-M-M-A-C-K is how you find her. K-A-T is the first name from the Florida 3rd District. Congresswoman, I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. I've got more. I'm Tony Katz. Boston beer falling hard in the pre-market. So Boston beer is the home of Sam Adams. As we all know, I happen to like Sam Adams. I think it's a fine, fine brew. But they also make truly hard seltzer. And sales have been awful. As a matter of fact, Coors got into the hard seltzer game and then got out of the hard seltzer game. Hard to compete against White Claw. If you're not one of the first two in, it's it's very, very hard. Right? It's Coke, Pepsi, and then what? It's Nike, Reebok. Well, you can argue Adidas. Maybe Adidas over Reebok. Maybe there's a, there's a three. But you don't get much more than that. First in is very important. And people tried to jump in on, on the hard seltzer craze. It, it did not work out so well. So Sam Adams had $4.75 a share, net sales of $603 million. Analysts thought it would be $6.69 per share and revenues of $658 million. That is a miss, kids. 
I gotta also wonder what it's like. So Sam Adams was like the original microbrew, the original craft brew. Well, let's call it the original craft brew. I think that'd be more accurate. And now there's a craft brew every four seconds, and some of it is fantastic, absolutely positively special. Is is what's going on in the brewery world? You know, I, I often talk about the distilling world and what's going on in spirits, bourbon, and I had I had a, a, a simply insane scotch that's finished in sherry casks uh, just the other day. You'll hear about it on my Eat Drink Smoke Show, EatDrinkSmokeShow.com. We review cigars and bourbon. It's 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 incredible, incredible. It was nuts, but the beer scene is still special, still special, and still terrific. Every step of the way. The Indians make a name change. So what does it mean for the Indians? I've got that story coming up. This is Tony Katz today.